it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is John Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, coming to you from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. If you haven't checked out the uh, uh, what's next event, uh, dot com site, uh, to find out about our what's next event next week, please do it. We're a little pressed for time and I, I have, uh, such a craving for rank punditry that, um, I, I'm, I, I'm just chomping at the bit. So without further ado, we have my friend, former colleague, and one of the great, um, and I mean this in the great, the best sense of the word, one of the gr- most rank pundits we have around, um, uh, on par with Chris Star of Chris Starwalt and Aristotle when it comes to punditry. So, uh, Jim, welcome back to the Remnant. Jonah, it's always good to be with you. You know, virtually or in person. I haven't. It's not that I've been awake for seventy-two hours, but I have not gotten a ton of sleep over the past seventy-two hours. Um, if, if you love campaigns and elections, this is this is the Christmas time of year. This is this because there's not you. You talk about what the voters are going to do for like. Two, in some cases, four years, you know, like, oh, this, this is going to, and then you get the results and then you get actual numbers and you get to see, oh, wait a second, this state went this way and this voted there, you know. So on the one hand, this is like really energizing. On the other hand, you know, it's also exhausting. As, as Merlin says in Excalibur, a dream to some, a nightmare to others. <laughs> um, so uh, we're recording this midday on, we're recording this at 147 on Thursday. And uh, I don't want to go just forever about electoral college crap, but, you know, as a level setting thing, where do you see things right now? Sure. In all likelihood, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. It is not official yet. Uh, We're still waiting on results from Arizona, which, you know, Fox News called for Biden on election night with a great deal of consternation and controversy and pushback from the Trump campaign. Right now, Biden has a lead. Uh, As did place, AP, though they use yeah, the same. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so that's just, you know, yeah. um, Biden's lead is shrinking as they bring in more votes. And the Trump campaign says that what's left is more Trump heavy than Biden heavy. So they think they can eke out a win in that one. Either way, it's going to be close. Uh, similar story in Nevada. Uh, Nevada is a smaller state, but that Biden lead was only about 8,000 votes last, uh, last I checked. So another one going to be like, you know, 1% or less. This is, you know, going to be very close. Um, we got decisions in Wisconsin. That one was also very close. Only about 20,000 votes decision in Michigan. Not that close. That's now in the neighborhood of about 3%. We're Georgia, where it looked like Trump had a lead. And now I guess the remaining votes are heavily in Fulton County, which has Atlanta and around Savannah, heavily Democratic, and they think there'll be enough to 
uh, overtake uh, the current Trump lead in there. I think last I checked, it was only about 15,000 votes. And uh, I would say the big enchilada, but no one goes to Pennsylvania for enchiladas. Uh, the big cheesesteak, uh, if you will, is Pennsylvania. Trump has a fairly substantial lead, but the places that have to report are generally Democratic, including Philadelphia, including those suburban counties. Um, there's probably going to be enough votes for Biden to overtake him there. Uh, also, by the way, Pennsylvania is one of those states where, you know, Democrats were voting early. Democrats were voting absentee. Republicans were voting on Election Day. Election Day votes got counted first. So it looked like Trump was ahead by this massive amount. And then as these absentees and mail votes come in, um, they start creeping up. I imagine we're going to end the conversational steer in this direction. You end up with a whole bunch of very close finishes. You're going to have allegations of shenanigans and irregularities. And I saw somebody putting votes into a shredder and I saw somebody putting ballots in a, getting ballots out of a trunk of a car. Look, all of these states were ones that were considered either likely to go to Biden or swing states or close. They're all going to end all pretty close. So I don't think these are ipso facto, um, you know, oh, the Democrats must have stolen this one. They may have, you know, in all likelihood, they probably won them a fair and square. That said, I don't like everything that's being done in these cases. Like when the Mm -hmm. state attorney general, Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania says, if all the votes are counted, Joe Biden's going to win like three days before election day. Dude, you are the state attorney general. You're the chief law enforcement officer of the state. You've got responsibilities here. Don't run around like you're the chair of the state party, Democratic Party as a cheerleader. So Trump, if, if Trump does not win this, Trump supporters will be claiming this thing stolen for a long time. They won't be right, which is not to say that there wasn't anything that didn't emanate an odor about some of these places. Um, posters by the entrance to the polling place in Philadelphia and things like this. Um, but in all likelihood, Biden will be the next president of the United States. Uh, and if, But I, I don't know about you, Jonah. I'm feeling pretty good about things, not because I was really you know, out of any great love for Biden, but at this hour, it looks like minimum it's going to be 50 Republican Senate seats and with two runoffs in Georgia. They could easily win both. I hear there's going to be some money spent on those races. Yeah, probably. Probably the entire political world is going to, you know. uh, But I shouldn't, at this point, it's not a guarantee that that second seat's going to go to a runoff. It's going to miss by like a couple thousand votes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it turns down a really, really close election race. Uh, Republicans gain seats in the House. Right now, if they hold on to everything, they're ahead. It's like they'll be like 210, 215, and they only need 218 to win. Uh, to, to get control of the chamber. So they'd be well positioned heading into 2022. Uh, state legislative races went well. Governor's races went well. And uh, there are six Supreme Court justices. So Jonah, if this, if this is a bad day for what I believe in, I can live with it. This is not that bad. I, I agree. I just uh, wrote a column about all this and we will return to this point um, in a minute. I do want to push back a little bit. Um, I agree. Josh Shapiro saying idiotic things. Biden's campaign lawyer, Bauer, said idiotic things, right? But in the grand scheme of things, to talk about the, and I'm not, I'm not implying or impugning you in any way on this, but just knowing what some of my listeners will say, to talk about the irresponsible behavior of the Attorney General of Pennsylvania two days after the president of the United States said we must stop counting the votes wet, that he said that where he's implied constantly on Twitter, not even implied, basically outright said that all the votes that are being counted that came in 
by mail or early votes are essentially manufactured mm-hmm. that he claimed preemptively, you know, sort of like Michael Scott in the office, I declare bankruptcy. I declare, I hereby declare we have won these states. Um, and where he is going around saying that in the states where he's behind, they must keep counting. Yeah. In the states where uh, he yeah. is ahead, they must stop counting. Um, he is the chief law enforcement officer of the country. Um, that's not good either, I think it's fair to say. No, no. Trump operates on a clear and consistent principle, which is that votes that are cast for him are legitimate. And any vote cast for anybody else is illegitimate. And that's, you know, that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I just didn't mention it in the opening because I, I don't, because you're not going to see people saying Trump stole Pennsylvania because he's probably not going to win Pennsylvania. Um, of the close states that he's going to win, he could still you, get so out. So you, you think Trump will win Pennsylvania? No, not at all. Okay, I, well, I, you I, just he, said that people won't be saying Trump stole Pennsylvania because he's going to win Pennsylvania. No, because he's not going to win Pennsylvania. Oh, I sorry. Okay. I just, okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. Okay. Um, you know, Democrats will not be claiming that this was full of fraud and, and, you know, Republican. You may not even hear that many complaints about voter suppression. No, by the way, we had, you know, near, I think we had record turnout or the best turnout in 100 years. So you really shouldn't be claiming that this is uh, voter suppression. Some of the, the complaints about voter suppression, about long lines in the early voting, some places like here in Fairfax County. Well, we have one polling place open in a county. Yeah, you're going to have long lines. And oh, right. by the way, everybody's trying to stay in six feet apart. So, of course, the lines are long, you know. So so there's a lot of partisan nonsense. Everything I just said here, look, Trump has been running around screaming like an angry toddler for the better part of four years. So I guess you're right. But I don't mention him in my opening spiel here. Mm -hmm. I guess guess it's priced in. I'm used to him screaming that he won by a bajillion votes. And I'm surprised we didn't hear, you know, the illegals came across the board. We'll get that eventually, right? We'll get, you know... Every we can't do that anymore because he's all about the Hispanic vote now. <laughs> well, that's a great art, right? You know, you know. So. Not enough Mexicans came across the border to vote for Trump. That's the problem. <laughs> um, all right. So on this 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 point that you made earlier about how it was a pretty good day for Republicans, I agree entirely. And you know, I'm trying to move away from like cheerleader rah rah for Republicans, but this is good news, you know. And yeah. um, from a conservative point of view, and um. So my, I just wrote my column about this. will be out tomorrow. Um, you look at the the state of things, right? Democrats failed to flip a single house race in Texas. Um, failed to flip even a house. Will, okay, yeah. Even they, Will they did Hurd's not knock seat, off an incumbent. Yeah. yeah. Right. And even Will Hurd's seat stayed Republican, which everybody, all including me, all the hand ringers, Will Hurd is the kind of guy we need. That seat will never go Republican again. It it went Republican kind of significantly. I have a few points, I think, and. Susan Collins, who never led <laughs> in a poll for like 5,000 years, um, she won. Uh, Mitch McConnell, they spent $100 million to top of him. He won by like 5,000 points, um, give or take. Um, so one takeaway I have from this, and, and, and John Podortz beat me to the punch over, on, over commentary, is that at the end of the day, this really was an election about him, about Donald Trump, right? The vast majority of Democrats turned out in huge numbers not to vote for Joe Biden, right? There's very little evidence that, you know, there's this huge wave for Joe yeah. Biden. Um, they voted against Donald Trump. And um, the bet was that enough Republicans would turn out to vote for Donald Trump. That's where the enthusiasm was. And it turned out that 
that that wasn't enough. And so voters, if you take in the aggregate, and tea leaf reading of elections is often stupid, but if you take in the aggregate, the message seems kind of clear. No to crazy democratic nonsense. No to progressive AOC plus three BS. And yes to basically moderate Republican, you know, or sort of Republican politics in general. Just no to Donald Trump. It's a repudiation of him. Now, obviously, he's not going to read it that way. And the fact that he did attract new voters complicates the story. But if Donald Trump had not behaved like the guy you priced in at the beginning, um, it's very possible to see how he would have won handily, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can play that game of if Trump had 10% more self-control, 10% less self-absorption and whining and complaining and crazy accusations and conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Accused a few uh, fewer po- if he just uh, been a different guy, murder. Yeah, if he'd just <laughs> been a little, you know, just been completely, you know, um, if he just hadn't had the worst of his bad habits, then maybe we're looking at the, a very different situation. And, and here's the thing, for, for people who wanted this to be this top to bottom, east to west, in your face, total repudiation of Trump, you didn't get it, you know, because he won Florida, he won uh, Ohio, he won Iowa, he won a whole bunch of states that we all knew were were important to this. And he's probably going to be within two or 3% of Arizona and Nevada and Wisconsin and Michigan, you know, like he'll lose, you know, but by the time we finish taping this podcast, it's possible Nevada reports and Biden's at 270 and this thing's over, but he's not getting thrashed 400 uh, electoral votes to 35. Like some people, some people on the Democratic side were genuinely uh, predicting that. I don't, I mean, Texas was supposed to be in play. Right. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, like they, they did cut Trump's margin in half. I guess if you want a participation trophy for that, you can. But it ended up not being that close. It was like a half million votes. Um, so I think, you know, if you are, you and I largely align on Trump. I might be a little more given credit than you are, but we're talking, you know, you got to break out the micrometer. Yeah, that's, fair. that's totally fair. Um, and I you love know, you all the, the same. Yeah, they, I, I mean, you're, you're you. wearing your five-time gold jacket remnant guest jacket right now. So, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know. Clearly, I don't hold any of these things against you. Um, you know, that the, one of the the nice to so the question, you know, is the Republican Party going to be Trumpy moving forward? And it all kind of depends on how you define Trumpy. No one's going to say, well, you know what this party needs? More tweets about Joe Scarborough in the intern, right? No, no, no right. one's going to say, look at Trump's worst habits and say, yeah, we need some more of that. Now, some of the skepticism towards trade. Yeah, there probably could be. Um, I think it was one uh, was it Josh Hawley or somebody who said on election night, this is the future of the Republican Party, a multi-ethnic working class party. And you saw a lot of likes, a lot of retweets, people who really like that. And that seems fairly appealing to me as well. I happen to notice uh, that's used to what the Democrats used to think they were. And right. they've kind of become this more elite, uh, more focused on, I don't want to say boutique issues, but you know, we think of Michael Bloomberg financing gun control efforts all across the country. Right. That's not a, uh, one, that doesn't appeal to me. Two, I think it leaves a whole bunch of people who were these kind of blue-collar workers, particularly in that upper Midwest and all across the South. There's just no appeal for that. And this is a vacuum that the Republican Party can rush in and take over. And I don't think you have to sign on to um, a lot of the stuff that comes with Trump to head in that direction. So you can be a, a slightly more populist party, um, keeping sufficient amount of tra- you know, traditionalism, and it can be very competitive. 
Now, having said that, they, you know, looks like we're going to lose the popular vote by three million votes or so again. And if you're a Republican, that probably nags at you. No, you don't try to, the popular vote doesn't even get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but all other things being equal, you'd rather win it. And, uh, you know, particularly if you want to keep the electoral college alive, people should, people who win the presidency, although I think we're gonna hear a lot less complaints about the electoral college in about three days from now. (laughs) Can I give you a piece of advice? Don't say that on Twitter, even in a joking way. I have found that I'm like, I'm used to like, you know, the old feminist joke, you know, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? That's not funny, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm used to humorlessness from the sort of woke left. Make a joke about the electoral college. My God, these people yeah. come out of the, you are dunking on me for 48 hours all over the place about. It's the root of all evil. And we're not going to mention the fact that, you know, Vermont's got like Ben and Jerry living there and nobody else. And, you know, Delaware, when, Del- when Biden moves from Delaware to the White House, the state will empty out, you know. Right. You never hear anybody say, you always hear like Ian Milhauser or whoever that guy is. They're always like how outrageous it is that Montana gets two senators. They never say how outrageous it is that Rhode Island or Vermont get two senators. Right. You know, um, but no, you make a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Right. So one of the, you know, my shtick parties are too weak and all that kind of thing. There's that sun and moon theory of, of political parties. And for the last 30 years, we basically had two moon parties. Um, uh or two parties we want to moon there's that too um i think there's a high cause and effective thing there but i think that one of what what i when you said you know that this sort of mainstream more working class party is what the democratic party used to be it's conceivable you can make the argument which democrats did for 50 years after fdr got elected that this country was a majority democratic party because it was capitalist but with smooth with with soft edges and it took care of the working man yada 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 and i have my disagreements with that you know at the margins to one extent or another but or to that approach but it just simply could be that the that's what the majority real the real party is right that's the majority per view of americans and neither party actually fit to that. And so what we're seeing with the migration of the FDR coalition to the in the Republican Party is the Republican Party is becoming more like what the Democratic Party used to be, leaving some of us in a remnant, but that's another issue. Um, so do you actually think that the Republican Party is going to be a sort of more robust social welfare state, um, you know, sort of Jack Kennedy's party, let's say, you know, yeah. strong on nationalism and defense and more of a welfare state um, helping hand as well. Yeah. One of the things I've been chewing over. Um, so are you familiar with Chris Arnaud? Uh, yeah. Why do the, I know him? Uh, the, he wrote the book Dignity and he's done a lot of really interesting yeah, both yeah, yeah. writing and research on poor Americans. Right? And he goes, and goes to McDonald's all across the country and talks to me. And these are people who are not, if they vote, maybe they vote Democratic. Maybe some of them are Trump voters, but by and large, they don't vote. And they are people who, um, by and large, are, are just not attuned to anything going on in politics. It seems utterly irrelevant to their lives. And when you ask them, like, what what do you care about? What is what is something that motivates you? The the most common answer, Arnaud writes, the most common answer he gets is the hourly wage, mm-hmm. and because that's that's what touches their lives. That's you know right. all that stuff. So if you had a Republican candidate who said, you know, look, we don't know what the situation is going to be like four years from now, right? Nobody knew, nobody saw the pandemic coming. War, terrorism, there's all kinds of events that will happen between now and then. But let's assume the circumstances like this without a pandemic going on. 
a Republican candidate who said, my goal, number one goal as president is to increase wages in this country, and particularly for the people in the lowest rungs of the ladder. I think that could get a lot of votes. And I think, you know, one of the, you look, what, how do you get that into policy? I don't think you'll ever have a Republican Party that loves raising the minimum wage. In fact, I think it's pretty vehemently opposed. I think you could get to a point where certain Republicans are like, well, if the, if the labor market is tight enough and this wouldn't cause some sort of giant layoffs or something like that, maybe it should increase it on a state-by-state basis. I don't think you want to see fight for 15 all across the country, but maybe it is a good idea to have people at the lowest income scale to be making $15 an hour. Um, you know, and it's one of those things where if that gives you a level of support and a tapping into a group of voters who you've never had before, maybe it's worth it. You know, I, I, I don't think as much as I don't love the answers from the populace and, and, you know, Andrew Yang and this universal basic income or something like that, even if I don't like the, uh, the medical recommendation, it doesn't mean I think the diagnosis is wrong. And I think this is a voter pool, one that, you know, is, is there for the taking, but also like, these are Americans who, who do need help. And I don't know if, um, it will, you know, tax cuts, it's not going to do it for them because they don't really pay taxes. Um, I think a lot of you and I are around this. Actually, you're a little bit older than me, but we're not, you know, we're, we're late, mid to late stage generation X. The kind of entry level jobs that you got into white collar America are shrinking and disappearing, or they're unpaid internships where you need mommy and daddy to cover your expenses while you're doing right. that kind of stuff. And, and these, the connections to get them in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that you got to go to the Ivy League schools where you meet friends mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, the idea of we're not an opportunity society anymore. And the idea of becoming, you know, a Republican presidential candidate who said, I want to make sure that the poorest kid from Appalachia and the poorest kid from South Central, the poorest kid from, from a border community just north of the, the Rio Grande all have the best opportunity to rise. Like that's, that's your message right there. And you can run against the Mike Bloomberg's of the world. You can run against, you can run against the Hunter Biden's of the world, right? You can make this argument that there is this progressive aristocracy that has kind of taken uh, certainly controls academia, certainly controls media, certainly controls a lot of corporate America. And that is kind of, they've, they've shut the door behind other people, that there isn't sufficient number of opportunities for people to rise. Um, and I don't think, I don't, maybe that's not all that populist. Maybe it's very conservative. Populist generally includes the sense of like, you know, you stink, the rot at the top and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think we, you know, I'm not sure how much that's, if you do that Reagan-esque sunny optimism, I think you've got a uh, a coating of that over that that could uh, that could work, but this is you know, yeah. I mean, look, it's way before the horse. You know, I agree with you, and I think entirely on the politics question. Um, where I get a little more concerned is on what happens when look. I mean, politicians are designed to do things to attract voters, right? This is one of the reasons why at NR. We, you know, the the Bill Rusher line, politicians will always disappoint you because if you're a hardcore, you know, Milton Friedman, Tom Sowell reading, you know, uh, dork, um, and you put all your faith in politicians and then politicians do stuff that violates conservative principles, you get really mad at them. And the problem is, is that that's what politicians do. It's not, it's, it's, as they go where the votes are, like robbing banks where the money is. And so one of the things, but one of the concerns I have is the, the, you know, how do I put this? Historically, you know, the major problem that conservatives had 
um, in winning over voters to their ideas is that conservative ideas tend, uh, particularly on things like economics and the role of government, tend not to be popular. And whenever you're debate, whenever conservatives debating a liberal, the conservative says, "Look, I really care about the working man, and um, I want to help the working man." And the Democrat or the liberal gets to say, "Hey, this guy says he cares about cares about people like you. I'm going to write you a check." He's not right. It's the whole teach a man to fish versus give a man to fish. Our message, I think, is philosophically more sound, but politically, people want free fish. Right. They don't want to like be given a rod and say, go out and work. And I'm not saying people are lazy or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying as a as a matter of political pandering for the most votes, giving away stuff tends to be popular. And so when I hear, you know, all of a sudden there's this boomlet for multi-ethnic working class party, you know, for the Republican Party. I'm entirely in favor of helping the working class and I want to win them over. And I, I think there are a lot of people like Ramesh and Yuval Levin. Michael Strain and Jim Pethagoukas are making arguments, Arthur Brooks, about making arguments about helping the working class, but using conservative policy tools to do it. And what I hear from people like Holly and a lot of these others is, yeah, that's too complicated. That's too hard to communicate. Let's just kind of do what Democrats did, but we'll call it, we'll make it sound right wing instead of left wing. And that could have a real corrosive effect on conservatism as, as you and I grew up knowing it. Mm. No, I, I think it's, it's very likely. I, one other, you know, contingent factor to this is, you know, I, I was just got off doing a, a, a heritage panel on this and we were talking about whether the party would go in that direction. And my emphasis is like, what is Trumpism? You know, is it venting your spleen on Twitter every day and getting into fights with TV person? Is, is, it, is it watching a lot of television and then tweeting angrily about it? Like, I don't really think that, you know, that gets you very far. Um, and that's a habit that, you know, Repu- I, I, it'll be interesting to see if anybody, you know, the, the Josh Hawley's, the Tom Cotton's, if anybody tries to emulate it. I think one of the things that if you see Trump as having been this very toxic effect on our public discourse and our public life and our values and our ideas of what leadership is supposed to be, what, a polit- you know, um, the fact that everybody else who tried to do Trump's shtick and who wasn't Trump, it generally fell flat on their face. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy in West Virginia, or no, I'm sorry, Kentucky, who, uh, ran against McConnell and the cocaine Mitch guy. Who, who's then, you know, like gave Mitch McConnell the coolest nickname, anybody, the coolest nickname since somebody else called him the apex predator of American politics. <laughs> um, but this, this sense that like, whenever everybody's like, I'm in your face, I'm aggressive. I, and then it generally, it doesn't work at the ballot box. If you right. want to be the next Donald Trump, you got to spend three decades being a non-political celebrity associated with wealth, success, and all this, and, and you know, movie cameos, and give Macaulay Culkin directions to the bathroom in Home Alone. You, you got to do all. Trump came with all kinds of advantages that not every wannabe is going to have, um, and so I think if they come along and they try to do the bad parts of the Trump shtick, uh, it's not going to work. So what are the good parts of the Trump shtick? And there's there's a lot of bad. There's no two ways about it. But he made a lot of people in these Rust Belt communities feel cared about. Mm-hmm. And when he went out, and he, by the way, he, you know, one of the reasons I think he had a not so bad election night is that he was out. You know, look, but we'll talk about the, the coronavirus issues aside. He was out campaigning and yeah. we kind of made fun of Joe Biden for staying in his basement and all that stuff. He went to these communities and, it, you know, it means a lot to a lot of these communities if the local airport, Air Force One lands and the president of the United States is coming there and he says, I will fight for you. Now, 
Will Trump actually fight for them? We can have that argument. I don't think we did that, that great a job. But the first step, is, you know, just like he did with the African-American vote, just like he did with the Latinos, Trump campaign, by the way, did amazing stuff reaching out to not just Cuban-Americans, which are going to get the headlines, Venezuelan-Americans, Nicaraguan-Americans, and Colombian-Americans. What do they all have in common? They have lived under socialism. Right. If the Trump campaign could have paid Bernie Sanders to campaign in South Florida, they would have done that. You know, we've, the, the Democrats have been dumb enough to give the Republicans this giant gift by openly associating with socialism. One of the great fears is in a Biden presidency, if that comes to pass, and I think that's likely, is that a certain number of Democrats will wise up and realize, yeah, ixnay on the socialism say. This is, uh, right. this is not, you know, this loses us a whole bunch of Latinos who we thought we had in our pocket. Well, see, see I, that, that, that point, which I think is a good one, captures the tension. Mm-hmm. As a conservative, we very much want the Democratic Party to abandon socialism. Just <laughs> write it out of their, yeah. their policy yeah. playbook, right? And instead, we want, I mean, this is a point Ramesh made to me 20 years ago, that the point of the conservative movement should be at least in part about moving the center of gravity of American politics rightward, not just the Republican Party rightward. Because if the Republican Party moves too far right, they leave the center, and that means the center is open for the Democrats to take it. Mm-hmm. What you want is if you move it rightward, then the Democrats become more conservative, and the things that you're arguing about become more constrained and more beneficial to our to our worldview. And those kinds of conversations often get lost, but not at Acton Line. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Act in Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Acton Line, visit acton.org slash dingo, or just search for Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your best and greatest podcasts. That's actin.org slash dingo to subscribe. We thank the Acton Institute for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So, uh, and that's sort of, that's the tension that I feel here is that the politicians are saying, oh, look at these shiny voters. Let's change what we believe to attract the shiny voters rather than persuade the shiny voters that we're on their side. And the socialism thing gives a huge advantage. And, and let me just say, I think, I wrote about this in the G file yesterday, but like, you know, particularly when I was at NR, but, but and also then for four years under Trump, I've been accosted by gripers and various, you know, VDR racist types for years. And, you know, and Michelle Malkin traffics in this garbage about how we have to stop importing immigrants because these dark skinned people are bring their values with them and are going to vote for socialism. And that's one of the things I love about the returns <laughs> is that, in fact, we imported anti-socialists yeah. with brown skin into Florida, and that's what made it winnable for Trump in Florida. 
And I, I, but uh, Jonah, I'm hoping that if, if Trump does not win a second term, which does not appear likely, I'm hoping between now and um, Inauguration Day, he will enact an amnesty for all of the Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans <laughs> and Colombians who are in the country illegally because clearly they're anti-socialists. We need to bring, they need a path to citizenship, Jonah. They need to be that's right. No, it's a good point. And like, and so what? What's sort of funny about this is also is that that argument from the sort of fever swamp right, which was always sort of a racist mess. No, not sort of. It was a racist mess. You you can take the sort of there. The left is now embracing it, right? And but instead of bringing socialism, they're bringing their strongman caudilloism. Yes, and that's what they like in Trump is that he is a classic Latin American dictator and all these kinds of things. But that's not a racist argument, apparently. That's just like, you know, Paul Krugman and Nicole, whatever her name is, being insightful. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's this interesting, when you hear that, you know, Cordillo's strongman, you know, they like Trump because he's El Jefe, you know. Do you think every Latino man who's working construction in the country right now, not just in swing states, but, you know, all across the country, don't you think every last one of them dreams of owning his own firm someday? Well, sure, you know, sure. his own truck, his own little business, his own tools, his own ladder and all that kind of stuff. And he knows that in that, you know, that he, he just needs, you know, he's, he's, he's working, he's saving the money, just needs a little time, maybe a little bit of a raise. He needs one or two big gigs that will give him that savings. He's trying to support a family. Maybe he's got some kids and all that stuff. Like, like if, if you're, you know, Trump didn't do a great job of talking about that. And you and I have talked to the past, like Trump has this ludicrously self-inflated idea of himself as a self-made man this tiny loan of a million dollars from his dad right. and all that stuff. But there is this, yeah, it's somebody did a parody of Hamilton with the Donald Trump life story. And there is something a little intriguing about a guy whose dad was a slumlord and was, was known for these, you know, tenements and these really lousy ones. And Trump wanted something more. He wanted mm-hmm. something better. He wanted to be associated with luxury and the finest places in the biggest city in the world. And if you could just put aside all of the, you know, the the mountain of personal, you know, character flaws and all that kind of stuff, there's something about that ambition and that drive and that, you know, being able to envision something beautiful in these rundown hotels that I think, you know, resonated with a lot of people. And again, it was it was exaggerated, you know, but the the um, the ice rink in Central Park, like there, mm-hmm. you got to look hard to find a hey, here's a real accomplishment of Donald Trump, but that one probably is as close as you can get to it. Although he actually screwed the contractor who did it, of course. Took so, all the credit, yeah, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> but no, but the, the customers were right. happy. That yeah, you know. yeah, 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 um, yeah. And uh, so, like, in the end, like that, if you can tap into that, and that's that's not necessarily um, that that's just believing in America, and it, it may have just lucked out for a while. But the exception of Joe Biden, most Democrats, their message for the past couple of years has been America's a terrible place. Right. America's a racist place. It's a xenophobic place. It's full of cops are shooting black men in the street all the time. Uh, we are we are terrible. We are a failed state, yada, yada, yada. And I think, you know, particularly for immigrants who came here because they believed in this country, they believe that doesn't resonate with them at all. And right. so if you can be the guy, the candidate who does believe in that, you got this huge advantage there. And also, by the way, I think it's good for the country. I, I, anyway, I, I know I'm, I'm leading us far. Somebody wants to. No, 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 on, no, no. I agree with all that. I mean, this is okay. one of the reasons my, one of my obsessions these days is Republicans needing to be more competitive in, in urban and metropolitan areas. And there's so much low hanging fruit there. I mean, you describe the, the Mexican or the you know, Mexican immigrant or Hispanic immigrant 
construction worker who wants to own his own firm one day and all he needs is a little bit more money and a little bit more disposable income. That's a message that sh those people exist in very large numbers outside of rural America. And the democratic machine politics that controls all of that is so easy to attack as long as you pitch it the right way. And, you know, and one of the things that that worker, who, he doesn't want to just make more money, he could also use to save money on his car insurance or his homeowner's insurance. And that's why I want to talk to you about Gabby. When you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. See about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have, thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. That's what I did. And I actually found out I was getting a good deal when you added in all the bells and whistles, and that gave me peace of mind, and that made it worth using Gabby just the same. But most Gabby customers save $825 per year, or as some say, per annum, on average. If they can't find you savings, they let you know, so you can just relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And even better, they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. Totally free to check your rate, and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby, that's G-A-B-I, dot com slash remnant. Not dingo, remnant. Gabby, dot com slash remnant. We thank Gabby, which is at Gabby, dot com slash remnant, for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is your promo code. You know, for a long time, I've been arguing that the, you know, and this is a very David Frenchy thing, you know, that negative partisanship that so defines our politics. And, you know, if you read Jonathan Rauch's stuff, it turns out that like the Re Republican Party and the Democratic Party aren't actually all that popular with Republicans and Democrats, right? Republicans don't actually like their party very much. Democrats don't actually like their party very much. They just hate the other party more. And and so the way I've often put it is that if if one party dies, the other party loses its reason to live. And for a while now, and I was wrong, I thought Trump was going to do more damage to the Republican Party than than he has. And I think that's um, manifest from the election results this week. But at the same time, um, you now can see how maybe it's the Democratic Party. I'm not saying they'll die and go the way of the Whigs, but you could see that the, the internal logic of their coalition falling apart on them, and they have to reinvent themselves in a way that they'll still call themselves the Democratic Party, but the coalition that makes up the Democratic Party makes up the Republican Party. You know, it's sort of like, you know, having to remind yourself, okay, what what were the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, or what were the Republicans and the you know in in the old in the nineteenth century? Because the names don't really match the philosophies that we know today. Um, it seems to me you could see both parties change, transforming very quickly over the next 10 years. And I don't know to whose benefit, but mm. um, it just seems very, very fragile to me. 
you know, Jonah, I'm going to give you a, a really optimistic vision. And, and I'm not I'm not sure 100% I believe this, but I, you know, some percentage I believe this. So Joe Biden has won, but he has not won in a landslide. He has not won, I think, with a sweeping mandate. And as you said earlier, he basically was running on the core message of I'm not Donald Trump. Right, right. Um, he, his party did not win the Senate. Uh, Republicans probably have a floor of 50. They probably have the two runout, runoffs. You got 52 votes. You know, you're not going to do court packing. You're not going to abolish the filibuster. You're not doing Green New Deal. You you can't get anything through. If um, Breyer wants to retire, which I don't think he will want to, uh, or, or, you know, God forbid, one of the justices keels over, you'd probably have to pick somebody, a compromise pick. I'm not even sure what mm-hmm. that would be. Merrick Garland. But, God, God rest his soul. Um, you know that they're there. You know, if only Merrick Garland were alive. Yeah, you know, um, they'd be very interesting. That you know that Biden would go into this because, like o- o- Obama, when he went with the Merrick Garland pick the first time, when when uh, the late Anthony Scalia passed away, like that was Obama's idea of a compromise pick, which most Republicans did not see as that much of a compromise pick. And everybody recognized you replace Scalia with Garland, the center of gravity on the court is shifting to the left. Right? There's you know. Right. Depending on who, you know, what opening there is, Biden would have to find somebody who'd, you know, probably be acceptable to a Republican Senate. And depending on who they were replacing, that might give you a sense of the level of opposition. It's possible with six, and listeners can't see I'm making air quotes as I say this, conservative justices or strict constructionist or originalist, however you want to characterize it, that if Breyer, you know, steps down, maybe you don't need to have Ragnarok over putting a left of center justice. Maybe they can have this one because it's not changing the balance of the court very much. God forbid something ever happens to Clarence Thomas. Maybe it does turn into a giant fight uh, over Mm -hmm. that or something, but you know, maybe just maybe that takes the temperature down a little bit. Um, Donald Trump has been a guy who every day looks at blue America, but he picks up the New York times that he, because thinking it's going to write something nice about him because he talked to Maggie Haberman a long time for the off the record yesterday. And it says something that Trump sucks. And he gets mad and he gets on Twitter and he puts out all that stuff. And then he's like, what can I do that I could piss off all those, those liberals? <laughs> I just I want to smash them. I just, who, who, what's important to them? We can find a federal program and I'll destroy it. That's how much do I Do they like this you. puppy? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll kill I, this puppy. <laughs> yeah, I will kill the puppy. I can do it on Fifth <laughs> Avenue. No one will mind. I can get away with anything. But I, the, I'm going to have to retire the Trump impression. Um, but you know, it's, a, it's one of those things like every day for four years, Donald Trump has woken up with, how can I piss off Democrats today? And that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't know if Joe Biden will wake up with that same, right. come on, man, how can I piss off? I, I think Joe Biden, I don't love the man, but no, I, think I, he wake, I think he wants everybody to get along. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's very realistic, but I think he's a backslapping, you know, hey, how you doing? You know. Uh, and I think McConnell looks at Biden and sees a guy he can do business with. It's not the guy mm-hmm. he'd choose. It's not the perfect guy. Well, he um, used to say in the Obama administration that Biden was the only guy he could work with. Exactly. Yeah. The, I've, the, I've heard the, him the, say it. Yeah. The word the from Eric Cantor and other guys was, um, if you try to negotiate with Obama, Obama will spend 30 minutes explaining to you that what you think is your best interest is not really your best interest. Right. And he knows your best interest better. So why don't you agree with him? And lo and behold, it would not work. Whereas Biden's negotiation would be, okay, you want A, B, and C. We want X, Y, and Z. We're going to mush them all together into one giant bill that's completely contradictory, but everybody gets, goes home with a win. Right. And 
congressional Republicans were generally okay with that. That was much easier to deal with. Best case scenario, that's what we're in for, for at least the next two years, maybe the next four years, of more traditional politics as usual. Maybe it's not going to be Reagan and Tip O'Neill, but everybody will, first of all, not hate each other. And everybody will know that they kind of got to get some stuff done. And probably a lot of this will be spending. That's not going to be great for us, but we just spent $3 trillion. <laughs> We have a $3 yeah. trillion, uh, deficit. At this point, money has no meaning. Um, and it's not going to be crazy stuff of let's make the District of Columbia a state or, or any of that kind of stuff. And if you're, and I, I made this point the other day, or I guess early, time has no meaning, Jonah. I can't remember when I wrote things. Um, but I made the point like, We've just been through an anus horribilis. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, close enough. You know, I believe it's a year from the anus is how uh-huh. they've, uh, <laughs> what that's exactly right. from. Um, we, we could use some peace and prosperity. We could use some calm. Some, I, we could use some boring. We've had four, and a half, four years of a presidency and really five, year, five and a half years of campaigning of just nonstop chaos. And so make America boring again and just kind of let you know, let, let's just kind of calm down. Let's get everybody injected with the vaccine by June. Let's get the economy recovering and just live for a bit instead of constantly needing to be in this state of perpetual near revolution. That's what I want. I've been talking about Earth 2 President Mitch Daniels for a very long time now. Um, I wrote in Mitch Daniels when I voted on Election Day. Um, uh I want boring. I like boring. I like serious arguments about serious things and, you know, all the rest. But here's where I worry that your sweet summer child naivete is coming through. Do you think, and I'm really eager for correction on this, do you think that if Donald Trump comes as close as it looks like he will, right, having gotten more votes than he did last time, even though he lost some states that he won last time, um, that he is going to go quietly into that good night and just hang out at Mar-a-Lago? Or do you think that, A, he is now the front runner for 2024 because he came so close, right? Um, Or B, do you think he creates um, why I really won TV, you know, uh, Trump TV and stays loud for a very long time, and at least some people on the right will go with him. And um, so do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it would be successful? However, and if so, how do you define successful? And, um, And will he end up making Mitch McConnell's life miserable? Yeah. So it, we, you and I are con- having this conversation on the middle of the afternoon on Thursday. And I really had to think about that because I can't tell what, what, what day from another. No, tell me about it. Since election day, Trump has put out the, you know, the predictable kind of tweets of they're stealing the votes. I won, right. you know, all kind of stuff. And by and large, Republicans have not said, yes, this is a, you know, elected Republicans have said at this point, we don't have any evidence of that. Let's count all the votes. There's nothing irregular about counting mail ballot. You know, by and large, elected Republicans are not going on board. I'm sure there are Fox News personalities and, and wannabe uh, yeah, I mean, types. Newt Gingrich has already said it's it's clear that the election's being stolen. You know, so some people are being jackasses. So. Um, but anybody who's got any kind of responsibility, you know, Mike DeWines of the world are like, no, mm-hmm. no, we're, we're you know. Um, Trump may well do this. A couple in a conversation a couple of weeks ago. 
your former boss, my current boss, Rich Lowry, observed that if Trump loses and it becomes official, yeah, he could, you know, go crazy and troops in the streets or let's nuke Pyongyang or, you know, crazy stuff. Or he could just say, screw all you guys. I'm going down to Mar-a-Lago. I'm not worried about the pandemic. Oh, you want to take over this job? You take over, you know, and he's never been into the governing part of the job. He's never been into the actual doing his work aspect of all this. So there's a, I think there's a slim possibility that Trump deep, like because he expressed so little interest in the governing part of the job for the past four years, I wonder how much that plays into his desire to return to the job in four years and pull a Grover Cleveland. Um, yeah. Do I think he could set up a Trump TV? Yeah, you know, he very well could. He, he, he certainly is complaining about Fox. Like his closing message the morning of election day, you know, Joe Biden visited his son's graveside. Donald Trump went on Fox and Friends and talked about how they haven't been loyal enough and how bad. Like he has no idea. His only interest is, you know, talking about himself. I think I, you know, so, so if he chose to choose to run again, Jonah, I sure as hell hope that anybody else who wants that job learns the lessons of 2016, doesn't let some son of mailman stay in the race until the very end, doesn't have 17 candidates, doesn't have it clogged, the debate stage clogged with uh, Mike Huckabee and Jim Gilmore and, you know, George Pataki and every other Tom, Dick and Harry, that if you're, if you don't want Trump to be the president of the United States again, and you're a Republican, then you got to unite behind, insert name here, Greg Abbott. Uh, some some other person, by the way, if you ask me who I think the Republican nominee is going to be in 2024, I think it's going to be someone who's not been associated with any of the drama of the past four years. I think we're going to be more than ready for a fresh face. And oh, we have no idea what the world's going to be like come 2024. And oh, by the way, I think most people would say there's a decent chance you're not running against President Biden. You may be running against either President Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris will be running as that, which is a completely different dynamic. And I think a lot of Republicans would say, Let's not Donald Trump four years older, four years crazier, four years angrier. Um, you know, here's the thing: Trump, the, the vast majority of the reason most elected Republicans have been going along with what Trump does is because he's president of the United States. Right. He can sign legislation. That. He can veto legislation. He can appoint people. He's got a lot of power. Once he doesn't have that, why? You know, then the only fear is, well, what if he gets back in the Oval Office again? And if you're a Republican office holder, you have some say over that. You have some ability to do that. So I don't know if, if in 20, late 2023, the Republican Party will be clamoring for to give Donald Trump another shot at this. That having been said, I think Harris will be way easier to beat than Biden. And, like if Harris had been the nominee, I don't think, I, I don't think we'd be talking about a likely Trump. I think that's right. Yeah. I, think, I think Biden made two significant errors. I mean, he made a bunch of smaller errors and we'll be chewing that over for a long time. But the two significant ones were talking about court packing at all and screwing up the answer and um, and appointing Kamala Harris. I, I just don't think it was a good idea. You probably idea. throw in fracking too, considering fracking, how close yeah. Pennsylvania yeah, 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 is. Yeah. yeah, you know, like, yeah. But that thing, I mean, that was sort of an unavoidable one because he had said so yeah. much stuff yeah. way in the past that, you know, that was his past coming to bite, bite him. Um, so I, but, if you're going to court pack, you know, it would say if you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. If you're right. going to say get the benefit of people who love the idea of court packing and accept you're probably going to lose everybody who hates it or say you're not going to do it. Don't be in this nether region where you think someday, you know, you'll, you'll fool enough people one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, the guy who said if you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna was Napoleon. And this is a point that I've been talking about for a while is 
The question is whether or not Mar-a-Lago is Elba or St. Helena, right? <laughs> Elba is where Napoleon bided his time before his comeback, and St. Helena is where he was exiled for the rest of his life or something like that. Um, and so the only reason why I'm a little less optimistic about your theory about Donald Trump, and I don't say you've, you're totally bought into it, I'm, I'm sure you think this is still possible, is that having spent four years not actually wanting to do the job of president, but wanting to be the chief pundit in chief and talk about whatever you want to do and opine on things, including in his own government. You know, it's like, how many times did he say somebody should arrest that guy or the government should do something when he's the guy in charge? The idea that he won't, now freed of any responsibility to actually get things done, that he won't become a super pundit, I'm, I'm, I, he likes attention very much. And the idea that he can go long periods of time without it um, is belied by how he behaved for four years. So who knows? Um, but I do think regardless of what he does, one of the most important things that conservatives can do, and also just people who believe in classical liberalism and healthy institutions, is visit donors' trust. Are you a bit like Paul? Paul is an investor who likes to get things done, both in business and in philanthropy. He wants to put his charitable giving to work in solving society's problems and fighting important fights now, not when he's dead. So he sought out the most tax-efficient and simple way to make sure his giving would be as effective as possible. He found Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, he opened a donor-advised fund. A fund acts like a charitable savings account that lets him give in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Now he spends less time on administration and more time having an impact. But Donors Trust is more than an administrative tool for Paul. With its unique mission, he sees it as a critical cog in advancing freedom. Donors Trust works with a wide range of donors who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to donorstrust.org slash dingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's donorstrust, all one word, dot org slash dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so let's, let's actually talk about a little bit more. Um, you were talking about the the... the this wonderful potential of normalcy coming. Um, uh, I've been saying for a while, Tim Alberto is the guy who convinced me of this, that, you know, he said to me a couple of weeks ago that if you could give Biden truth serum, he would want um, McConnell, he would want the Republicans to hold the Senate, right? Because mm -hmm. it just lets him off the hook. He can now yeah. just simply say, hey, you know, look, I mean, court backing sounds great. We don't got the votes. Can't get it through the Senate. Shut up. You know, let's, focus on what's possible. Um, other than the only other mandate we were talking about before about mandates, the only other mandate he has, which is a good mandate is to take the pandemic seriously. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see that. That would be a good thing if he did that. And I think that the sort of earnest gitchy goo public servant types in the democratic party are actually well suited to a lot of that. They might go overboard with too many lockdowns and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's one of those places where there are cadres of people 
who can do that job uh, or do that work. But so if you had to guess, and again, stipulating that we don't know for sure, but if Biden's the next president, what do you think he starts with? And when does the left of the party start to eat him alive? Um, I think the left of the party will get the message fairly early on that they've got to be patient and that, you know, that, that Biden may never really give them exactly what they want. But he will make, say, look, first problem is the pandemic. By the way, I, you know, there were a bunch of times during this election where you, I don't know about you, but like, I wish I could like mind control Donald Trump. Because if he went out there and he talked, instead of saying, it's going to go away one day, it's going to disappear, it's going to be like a miracle. And instead he said, let me give you the latest statistics from Operation Warp Speed, where how we are preparing <laughs> preparation right. lines so that once we have a formula for a vaccine that works, we have all the materials. All, you know, that's not Trump style. He doesn't give you lots of facts and data. But if he had, one, we might be talking a very different conversation about this now. And two, it would be better for the country. Um, the guy in charge of Operation Warp Speed says he realistically thinks we can get everybody in the country vaccinated by June. And if that's the case, you know, maybe he's being a little optimistic, but if he's talking about that, then it means, okay, you don't do it June, you do it July, you do it August. Yeah, and, and even the, if it's not everybody, if you get statistically right? significant numbers of people yes. vaccinated, that's a huge yeah. deal, right? Yeah. And so, look, we could be looking at the end of the pandemic by spring. And once people are allowed to go into their bars and restaurants in full, once they feel safe getting onto a plane, and once they feel safe getting on, people have been talking about all the things they want to do once the pandemic is over. All the trips they want to take, all they want to go to the movie and watch a big screen movie, all the Hollywood blockbusters that we're going to have a fantastic economic boom once people feel safe again. You know, one of the arguments that Trump could have said, probably this is probably close to what he said, but he could have like you know, really underlined in red. There's very little that's fundamentally wrong with our economy right now, other than we've got this terrible pandemic going on and we all have to wear masks and we all have to socially distance and we can't get together in crowds and all that kind of stuff. We're not over leveraged. Wall Street isn't having a meltdown. We don't have a housing bubble that burst. We just had this, you know, absolute calamity come over our way from China that completely disrupted the daily life of every single American and we cannot interact with each other the way we're used to, which, oh, by the way, is I think has had massive psychological effects on people. And I think it's a huge reason why people are angry and stressed. I think it's one of the reasons, you know, like George Floyd uh, protests would have come out and it would have been a huge deal no matter what. But let's face it, in in summer, that was the only thing you were allowed to do. Other than yeah, that- Yeah, no, I, I, right? I agree with that entirely. Right? So for Biden, the formula is there to this era of good feelings. People are going to feel fantastic if you don't screw up this vaccine thing. And if, if this, this guy in charge of Operation Warp Speed says- by middle of next year, people could be feeling terrific, right? Now, if you're Biden, do you want to screw that up with Green New Deal? Do you want to right. screw that up with uh, trying to make Stacey Abrams the attorney general or some stupid fight like that? No, you've got, you know, you, you can be in this era of, so just take care of that problem. The, the, also, the, as you said, um, not only can he say uh, to the left, to, to the, you know, the AOCs of the world, you got to wait, I got to take care of this stuff. Look, all Bernie Sanders ever did for Joe Biden is cost him Florida. Come on, man. You know, <laughs> Bernie, what'd you ever do for me? You know, like, screw you guys. You guys were, you, you called yourself socialists and you cost me a whole bunch of votes I should have had. You know, you'll, you'll get nothing and you'll like it from a Biden administration. You know, I don't think Biden will ever take this tone. Right. But for the centrist Democrats who are around him, and I'm, I'm hoping personnel is policy, I think we'll know very quickly what kind of a tone we're going to get from a 
Biden administration. If, uh, if you end up with um, Chris Coons, the senator from Delaware, as secretary of state instead of Susan Rice, if you end up with uh, Doug Jones, the outgoing Alabama, first of all, Doug Jones needs something to do with his life. He's not going to be senator right. for too much longer. If he ends up being attorney general instead of Sally Yates, then I think that's, a, you know, first of all, for where I'm sitting, that's good. The, 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 you know, out of Democrats, this is probably about sure. as good as you're going to do. They are not unhinged, frothing at the mouth, partisan fighters. They are not the same old crowd from the Obama team. Go for it. You know, let, let's, you know, I, I, I see a prospect where conservatives look at the, the Biden administration and say, eh, this is not that bad. This could have been a lot. This could have been much worse. And then Biden will probably kill over. Kamala Harris will take over and things will get much worse very quickly. But that's another story for another day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, or maybe it won't be that far away. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all of that is plausible. Some of it is probable. I worry about how there's an incentive structure on so much of the right that has been built up over four years to keep people constantly in a state of flight 93 election and that the world is constantly in peril, that it's an Democrats pose an existential crisis. I agree with you. Look, when one of the, when the core conservative insights or principles is that uh, half a loaf is better than no loaf, right? That, you know, you, you, it's a fallen world. You take what you can get. You, you think about alternatives to governance to choose, yada, yada, yada. Um, and a moderate Biden administration that makes moderation part of its thing, uh, that would be good. And, um, and we'll have lots of good fights with it, and I'll disagree with it on a bunch of stuff, but that would be good. I, I wonder if he has the political chops to manage that. Um, Fair. You know, the, the way I, the, my shorthand for this is this is going to be, is this going to be more like the first two years of the Johnson administration or the last two years of the Johnson administration? But maybe it'll be the middle two years of the Johnson administration. I mean, like maybe he won't have 100 days like we thought. Um, and he won't have be torn apart by damn hippies. It'll be something a little sort of in the middle. I do want to ask, so I haven't made up my mind about this. And I have, I have friends and colleagues who make a very good case that were it not for the pandemic, it's obvious that Trump would win. I can see that case. I might be persuaded by that case. But I can also see how the, the pand for the sort of the way that you talk about that, that, the pandemic just scrambled the board in lots of ways. And um, yeah, the economy would be better and all that kind of stuff. But were it not for the pandemic, I don't know that he necessarily would have roused his crowds the way he did, you know, in the same way that a lot of his crowds, a lot of the George Floyd protesters, it was the only thing you can do. A lot of these people were frustrated with lockdowns and the economy. This was their George Floyd thing. And Trump almost essentially said that, saying, you know, you're not allowed to meet unless it's a protest, so I'm calling our rallies protests now. And in an election where you're not trying to persuade anybody, you're just trying to turn out your people, the pandemic, I think, in the aggregate, worked badly for him because more people were, the Fauci was more popular than him, for example, right? But it did rev up his people in ways that I'm not sure they all could have been revved up beforehand. But I haven't made up my mind about this. What do you think about it? Yeah, that, I hadn't thought too hard about that second option there. I mean, my my gut instinct is that up until about February, I don't want to say Trump was on a glide path, but I think Trump's chances were not much worse than 50-50. You know, it's very tough to beat an incumbent president if the you know, up until from, you know, 
Trump's inauguration to about February, the economy was roaring along pretty darn well. You know, if you give Trump one more year of this, I think he wins um, because enough people, you know, just as we talked about how his good numbers amongst Latinos, et cetera, he's got 18% of African-American men. I think there's a similar figure of enough people are like, look, okay, he says a lot of crazy stuff, but I'm doing okay. My neighbor's doing okay. My community's doing a little better. I got more money in my pocket. I can put up with this for this kind of economy. I think the Democrats will screw this up. Um, I think the other thing which I think was like this mentality of, and you even saw this among some Republicans, like when, you know, when you're getting Supreme Court justices that you like, when you're getting tax cuts that you like, when you're, when you're getting policy, you know, ISIS gets killed. He's, he kills Soleimani. When you've got enough policy stuff that you like, and that the main problem of the Trump presidency is that he tweets every morning something that is not just crazy, but is also like destructive, whether it's QAnon or Alex Jones kind of stuff. And, and when the times that he tries to articulate for the conservative message, he tends to do so in the most spectacularly self-destructive way, confirming every, you know, like, like those are bad. Those, those are real headaches. But if the policies like you can just you can you can wash away a lot if you're getting the policy right. And Trump did say a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> and then the pandemic came along and he, his instincts on this were wrong at every step of the way. And a big one was like, it'd be interesting. Like if you want to see if, you know, I don't know if Earth 2 is it. There got to be some other mm-hmm. Earth out there where Trump, the germaphobe, oh my God, the Chinese, the, those people are this filthy stuff. Have you seen the wet markets over there? Everybody put masks on, stay home. <laughs> you know, if Trump had done that, one, would the pandemic have shaken out differently? Certainly, because I, I think if you look at the policy, when the CDC tests went wrong, it's not like Trump's in some back room uh, with a white coat putting them together. So there was a bunch of stuff that went wrong that was not his fault. The administration mm-hmm. also got some stuff right, uh, getting the, ramping up the testing and all that stuff and what we're seeing with Operation Warp Speed. Trump didn't talk about them because it just didn't care. Uh, it, it just wasn't about him. It just wasn't interesting right. to him. Um that the attitude, oh, okay, Trump's crazy, but he gets the policy right. The pandemic was the first time we're like, okay, no. And in fact, Trump makes things worse. For, I, I still don't understand why Trump doesn't like masks and why he didn't brand Trump brand masks immediately mm-hmm. and turn them into a style thing and all that kind of stuff. The constant insist, like maybe in March, April, you know, it's going to go away someday. It wasn't that bad. But by summer, it was clear it wasn't. I, I've been among those who's been, you know, called a, a fear monger. And you know, look, by the way, we're still not out of this. And where people right. say, "Oh, it's the third wave," <laughs> the first wave never ended. It just yeah, kept yeah. spreading to new communities. And you know, we, we needed to figure out a way to live with this, which is why I wasn't, you know, I was fine with the lockdowns early on. You can do it as a temporary measure, but you can't expect people to live locked up in their homes for the better part of a year. We were going to be stuck with this until there was a vaccine. We're lucky. Looks like this vaccine's coming along faster than anybody any vaccine has ever come along before. But you have to give people some way to live their lives. And every time California says you're not allowed to get together with that many people for Thanksgiving or something, of course you're going to have a backlash. Um, but but the, the coronavirus pandemic was the first time where Trump's nutty instincts really had terrible real world consequences and made people say, okay, I can't trust this guy. He's too screwed up. He's always going to downplay a threat because he's afraid. Like there's, there's, I don't know if this comes up in any of your conversation. You've probably feel like you've written encyclopedias about this presidency. Jonah is part of Trump's appeal, the sense that he was never going to ask anyone to sacrifice anything. 
I think so. I mean, I think that's right. I, I mean, yeah. Trump is never going to say to you, for the good of the country, I'm asking you to not do something. Like, like he's never going to do that. He's never sacrificed anything for himself. Donald Trump is the no sacrifice option. No wonder that was appealing. You know, you know, <clears throat> so that sense of, yeah, maybe he doesn't think he has a stature on some level. Maybe, maybe deep down for all of his narcissism, he knows if he says to Americans, I need you to not do X, that you want to do X. He knows they won't listen because at deep down, he kind of knows that their respect for him is very tenuous and conditional. I mean, I, I, I'll start from the beginning. I disagree a little bit that the, that the, the, the argument that you hear from some anti anti Trump people is that the only thing that people who don't like Trump object to is his style, right? I, no, I think yes, there's yeah. more to object to in Donald Trump than his style or his tweets. Um, but he does, and on the sacrifice point, it's a good way of putting it, is that, you know, his entire life was organized around saying anything complicated or difficult for him, that'll be in two weeks. But what can I do for you right now to put you in this condo today? Right. And so he's always saying, yeah, always be saying yes to things It's a classic sort of salesman thing. And I think that infected a big chunk of his of his presidency. One of the areas, I, you know, I, I, just to circle back, because I got to close out soon. You know, we started talking uh, early on. We were talking about the um, the working man's party and the blue collar party and all of that kind of stuff. It's kind of worth pointing out and make of it what you will. That a lot when you're talking about early, just now about the Republican, the successes that Republicans like that allowed them to sort of disregard the bad stuff about Trump, the judges, the tax cuts, all those things. That was all consistent with Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, Federalist Society, traditional conservatism. Those tax cuts were corporate tax cuts and tax cuts. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean this in a pejorative way because, you know, what has two thumbs and likes tax cuts? This guy. But these were pretty classic Paul Ryan style, mainstream Republican, establishment Republican, corporate and personal tax cuts. And the judges were entirely, with a few iffy people on some lower courts, entirely the product of sort of Federalist Society conservative legal movement stuff. And the, and I think that's one of the things that exposes the tension. One of the few places where Trump, you know, this, this, this guy who cares about the working man thing, the actual Republican policies that he got across, at least according to these people who say we need to throw away the old Republican party, weren't those kinds of things. And his trade stuff screwed a lot of working men. Um, and Part of the problem was that a lot of working men don't understand, no offense to working men, but there are a lot of people who don't understand how trade works and that don't quite get, just like the president, that foreign countries don't pay for the bulk of the tariff, right? The American mm-hmm. consumer no, pays consumer for the does. tariff. Yeah. yeah. And I can't think of very many times when forced to choose between doing stuff that would help the, his supposed con- main constituency, who are these forgotten men, or doing stuff that would put points on the board for the Republican establishment where he didn't actually go for the Republican establishment. And so there's some myth-making going on about, you know, his Huey Long presidency. Um, it was entertainment on the Huey Long variety, but the policy wins with the exception of trade and all of that stuff, which I think was disastrous. 
um, and a few other little things on foreign policy, they were basically mainstream, you know, Phil Graham-style Republican politics. Yeah, by the way, like, we'll see, you know, how things shake out for 2024. I, there's not a lot of folks who have run before who I'd like to see go again. Uh, already there are some folks who are like, oh, you know, Rubio has that right combination and look how success in Florida and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you're right. Like if any other Republican had been elected in 2016, we would have had all the same policy wins, probably the, the almost exact same judicial picks. Mm-hmm. And we would not have had all the grief and aggravation that comes with Donald Trump being president. Um, and they are, there's the, well, people argue till the end of time about whether any other Republican could have beaten Hillary Clinton. I think one of the lessons of this, I, I had gone into this election day saying like the big, you know, thinking Trump was going to lose Trump, thinking Trump was going to lose by a pretty solid margin and say, ah, you know what the historical lesson is Hillary Clinton is a trash candidate. And, you know, mm-hmm. Trump had the winning lottery ticket, right? That, if, you know, that, you know, you, you run Scott Walker against your Scott Walker wins. You run Rubio, you run, right. uh, Ted Cruz, you run anybody except the mailman, uh, sorry, son of mailman, you end up winning that race. <laughs> and there are Trumpers who would disagree, you know, disagree until, until the cows come home. Um, now I've got to look at this and say, well, you know what? I mean, this this was really lousy conditions to run for president as an incumbent. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic, the economy, Trump has no message discipline. And he's going to lose by about, you know, he, he won a bunch of the states he needed to win. And he came within about two or three percentage points of the, of the others. Yeah. You know, you're just going to move the number a little bit better to his the, the lever over a little bit more. And Trump won a second term. So, yeah, maybe he was a little better of a campaigner than I thought he was. Maybe maybe he is, you know, um, this, I, mean, I think his his problems are still manifest and profound and all that kind of stuff. And I think he also was helped, as you said, by, by the Democrats. Biden talking about court packing, Biden talking about fracking, Biden talking you know, like you know, don't do that stuff. All right. Thank you, my friend. Everybody, this is Jim Garrity. I can't even close the show the way I normally would because I really got to jump off. I got to take this call. Um, Thank you, Jim. Always great to see you. And I will talk to you and I will see you soon. All right. Looking forward to it. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.